You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Learn about somebody new. Read a book by a Black person. See a documentary about a Black person you never heard of. Or, you know what I mean? Just learn something. Go to an exhibit at a museum or a gallery featuring the artwork of a Black person. You know, learning about Black people is, is a gift. So find some people to learn about. That's ultimately what I... I think is um, a good thing to do during Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. You just heard Clancy Miller on how she hopes we'll all celebrate. We'll hear more from her later in the show. As the incomparable Bell Hooks wrote in 2016, to truly be free, we must choose beyond simply surviving adversity. We must dare to create lives of sustained, optimal well-being and joy. From creating equitable opportunities in the dairy industry to telling the quiet parts loudly about kitchen life during American slavery, this week we round off Black History Month and head into Women's History Month with a love letter to Black women in food who are embodying this ethos. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, back from maternity leave, and this is Meat and 3 on HRN. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Black History Month is not only about remembering those who came before us, but also about making sure we celebrate those who do important work while they're still here. For our first story, we shine a spotlight on the Cheese Culture Coalition, a nonprofit organization featured on HRN's Cutting the Curd. Katie Ruther shares some highlights from their conversation about promoting equity and inclusion within the cheese industry. Although its exact origins remain unknown, cheese is thought to be tens of thousands of years old, linked to the domestication of milk-producing animals. Over millennia, cheesemaking spread across Europe, the Middle East, and Asia before arriving in the Americas with European colonists. Today, the U.S. is one of the largest cheese producers in the world. Despite this fact, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, are severely underrepresented in the dairy product manufacturing industry. In 2022, only 3.4% of those working in the industry were Black. Who comes to mind when you think of your local dairy farmers, cheesemakers, or cheesemongers? In 2020, the murder of George Floyd and ensuing protests spurred Whitney Roberts, cheesemonger, cheesemaker, and cheese educator, to found the Cheese Culture Coalition. We are a nonprofit with the goal of increasing equity and inclusion and diversity within the cheese industry. Um, we're doing that through education of the BIPOC community. I started the organization um, because basically my entire career I've almost exclusively been the only 
BIPOC individual behind the counter at all the places that I have worked, um, specifically like the only black woman um, behind the counter or in any in any cheese situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, you know, that's something that I always noticed. I always felt that and in any kind of cheese situation that we were in, it's always been, there's always been a lack of diversity. The industry as it is, I know that I had to do something that was going to make cheese accessible to people and to get it to marginalized communities. So I started the CCC. Whitney was joined by fellow cheese enthusiasts, including Kira James and Ajayla Abdullah, to build an organization centered on education. At the Cheese Culture Coalition, their work is twofold. First, they provide educational grants for BIPOC individuals pursuing careers in the cheese industry. They also develop and deliver cheese-centered education to students in underrepresented communities. Through these efforts, they hope to create seismic shifts in their industry. I really think that what we want to achieve in the next five years is I think, and I know that we can do this, is change the cheese industry. I know that all of us on the board, we are... BIPOC individuals in this industry. We're all telling our stories. We're all speaking to our experiences. And I think that in order for us to really be able to make an impact and really be able to share the love of cheese and the passion of cheese that we have with these kids, we're going to have to make sure that the industry is a place that's welcoming for them when they come into it as well. And welcoming and accepting of them um, when, when they're ready to when they're ready to start their careers in GE. So I would say the one thing that we're going to be doing and the one thing that I hope to do, it sounds kind of like a general thing and kind of like an obvious thing, but I think it's just to change the cheese industry and change the lack of diversity within it. Kira James, the coalition's curriculum development director and founder of Own Your Funk, a cheese enthusiast brand focused on education and empowerment, underscores the hunger for cheese-related knowledge in her communities. But definitely, I mean... BIPOC people are eating cheese. They're talking about cheese. You know, I know my communities, uh, being mostly uh, people of color, uh, always want to know more about cheese. Always, you know, I have to bring cheese to to events and things. So <laughs> it's just a matter of getting the information to them and, and making them feel as though um, it's meant for them. Making BIPOC individuals feel as though the cheese industry is meant for them starts from the inside out. Ajayla Abdullah, the coalition's public relations director, speaks to this idea and the importance of doing this work in community with other women of color. My goal is to uplift, to empower, and to help affect change. So, you know, one of the things I I appreciate about working with this organization, about working with these women that I work with, is this is an organization, you know, by us, for us. So this is an organization started by a woman of color. And there are women of color on the board. And we all have different experiences and backgrounds, but we all have the same goal. And doing that kind of labor feels really good. So it's a it's a little bit selfish also, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I get a good feeling from 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 doing this kind of labor with people who I know are in it, like really wholeheartedly just in it. The Cheese Culture Coalition comes together around a shared mission, bringing together board members with varied backgrounds and experiences. As a group, they illustrate the power that comes with difference. 
Indeed, as Ajayla says, it's the acceptance and inclusion of difference that will propel the cheese industry forward. Adding diversity to the build is seen as taking away from the industry instead of seeing that when we add diversity, when we add equity and inclusion, it's going to make a more powerful industry. We're going to be stronger. And, you know, having this diversity is what's going to keep our industry alive and thriving. For our next story, we turn to Rana Rudy, who explores the power of food as a tool to preserve history, tradition, and culture. In 2008, Therese Nelson found herself at a crossroads. After graduating from culinary school and working several jobs in the industry, she began to question the culinary space around her. I was finding myself in sort of professional spaces where my white counterparts were able to sort of luxuriate in the nuances of their own cultures, right? Like, there was this moment where Italian cuisine was just so hyper-specific, and we were getting, I mean, you you could delve into the regionality of Italy, and you could think so so passionately, particularly about French cuisine, and there, there's this kind of subliminal message that there isn't really a value or room or this othering of um, Black culture. And I don't know, I just, it felt intuitively wrong, especially as an American chef, knowing historically and knowing just in my own marrow that Black hands created and were responsible for and entrenched in the fabric of American society, American culture, especially American labor. So where were our stories? With this question in mind, Therese set out on her mission. Food history for me has always been this way of telling the truth when traditional routes aren't available. Using culinary tradition as her medium, Therese seeks to preserve Black heritage throughout the African diaspora and to capture and celebrate the work of Black chefs. In 2008, she founded the organization Black Culinary History to do exactly this. As their mission statement proclaims, Black culinary history is a place for reverent examination of our culinary past while supporting the work that will build our culinary future. So much of Black culture is obscured or misrepresented or sort of present in forms that are non-traditional. Like if we are looking for history to be represented in books or in the way we overtly teach or um sort of distill or share history it won't be it won't that's not going to happen in our culture right we we're oral we have oral traditions we have um just a lot of non-traditional spaces places that our heritage is really kind of preserved and so you have to sort of divorce yourself from thinking that you're going to be able to find linear stories in our culture. But food, because of its universality and because of its sort of core humanity, allows us to fill in gaps that are intentionally or um, sort of subliminally left out. In contrast to the years before, Therese acknowledges and celebrates this new moment of culinary history taking place now, a moment where Black chefs, who for years have been overlooked, are reclaiming the spotlight. We took advantage of the othering and took time to really kind of get dope and better. 
I wonder what this moment would have looked like in the 1980s. Like if we had been smarter, less racist, less um, elitist, less less myopic. Now we look in Africa and really realizing the, the the wealth of countries we have available that folks have been um, denying or sort of overlooking. What I think is most fascinating in this moment is that so many more Black chefs feel deputized to tell cultural stories that are nuanced and are hyper-specific and don't fall into sort of lazy tropes about what our food is. It's, it sometimes is complicated, it's often troubling, it's all, and that all of that is mixed up in the story. And so how do you, you know, do the magic of packaging that in a way that's digestible and delicious and craveable? Through Teresa's work, she invites us to explore the richness and diversity of the African culinary diaspora. The work I do is interested in making Black chefs, Black food creators, much more prepared and much more rigorous about our own culture. There's this moment where we have this ability and this attention and this space to luxuriate in who we are and what we have to say. And I want to be sure that we are all working from the best, most full, most informed set of resources as possible to make our food ways as vibrant and as truthful as possible. Head to Teresa's website, blackculinaryhistory.com, or check out her Instagram to stay close to her work that is loudly and proudly celebrating Black chefs and creatives. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Up next, we peek into the past through the eyes of Lenny Sorensen. It was actually a very gradual process. I had always been uh, a, an aggressive reader of history. I really dug that. And I dug my own family history. So I was always really into that. If you recognized her voice, you're not alone. Lenny is a multi-hyphenate African-American research historian featured in the critically acclaimed Netflix series High on the Hog. Earlier this month, Lenny joined Todd Shulkin for an episode of Inside Julia's Kitchen to talk about how her time as a farmer deeply impacted her work researching the culinary history of Thomas Jefferson's former plantation, also known as Monticello. The thing that struck me was I knew very well that so much of American agriculture, especially in the South, had been done by Black people, enslaved Black people. And yet that didn't seem to be reflected. Somehow 
all black people did was, uh, I don't know, pick cotton. And, and yet all those meals and all those cows that had to be milked and all that stuff that had to be done and all the food that had to be prepared um, was kind of left out. But as I farmed and really thought a great deal about it while I was out milking cows and, and cooking on wood and chopping wood, you know, I realized those were all activities that, that black people enslaved and free had been doing for you know a couple hundred plus years. And how could that story be told? Lenny talked about her early years in farming and the various opportunities that led to her critically thinking about the ways in which the stories of enslaved people's daily lives were being told. One such opportunity brought Lenny to a role as a craftsperson at James Monroe's former plantation Highland, formerly Ashlawn Highland. And I went there to work. And in that setting, began to really use all the stuff that I'd been thinking about, Black people in agriculture, and particularly women, and uh, Black people in gardening, and harvesting, and preserving, and doing all of the activities that if you saw a menu for an elite table, you could look at that and break it out and figure out, okay, where did that food come from? Who raised it? How did it get processed? How did it get cooked? How did it get butchered? How did it, um, who did it and how did they learn how to do it? All of those things. One story prominently featured in High on the Hog was that of James Hemings. Hemings was Thomas Jefferson's enslaved black chef who was brought to Paris to learn French cookery. Stories like Hemings and those previously misattributed stories of the black head chefs of the White House have more to be told if we read between the lines correctly. Lenny's research has led to her doing just that, unearthing stories about the women of these kitchens and how integral they were to each and every meal. Many weren't even named in historical documentation, but why were they being left out? Women's work has almost always been dismissed as just trivial. And back when I first started doing this stuff, I don't think there were any food studies programs in the United States, at least that I knew about. And so my thinking was, yes, we could talk about field labor. And there are incredible uh, works on the, uh, the rigors of, of, uh, and horrors of field labor and all of that and the details of it. But there's all of this domestic work that also had to be done and that was done to maintain the elite classes. And of course, it was all under you know, the umbrella of slavery. There was no way to avoid that because that was the reality. So in that setting, how did all that stuff get done? Especially when we see, when we read old cookbooks, when we read old diaries, journals, and letters, the excellence of the food uh, or the beauty of the wrought iron work in, say, a place like South Carolina or the buildings that, that 200 years later are still standing and are gorgeous. How did people achieve such beautiful results under this really uh, onerous burden that they all lived under? So to me, the food, I, I just wanted to focus on what did people have to know how to do? And then what did they do? And you know, I mean, sometimes, because they didn't leave necessarily journals and letters, I have to do a bit of um, you know, feeling about what, what they would feel about it. 
At times, it's difficult to comprehend the sheer amount of laboring that Black people did well, without acknowledgement, while enduring the inhumanity of American slavery. Lenny's work seeks to highlight the community relationships that she believes must have been a source of strength throughout. And that you might not get any kind of feedback from the white family. You're not hearing, oh yeah, Betty Jane, she's fantastic, and the food was really wonderful, and thank you. No, no, no. They are eating what they expect to have presented at the table, and if anybody gets credit, of course, it's the mistress. So they, they have to find some appreciation somewhere. I really believe they're finding it within the community, within their own community, because as deeply oppressive as all of that was, I don't think people could be angry all the time. Check out Inside Julia's Kitchen to hear more about Lenny Sorensen's fascinating and important research about the resilience found in the presidential kitchens of the antebellum South. For our last story, Taylor Early endeavors to put the sweet back into bittersweet. Pastry chef and food writer Clancy Miller is for the culture. No, really. She is the phenomenal woman behind For the Culture, a magazine published in 2020 dedicated to celebrating Black women and femmes in food and wine. So to celebrate the first day of Black History Month, Clancy and I talked pastry lover to pastry lover about sweet potato pies in Paris, the upcoming release of For the Culture, the book, and how we can simultaneously celebrate and challenge the traditions that we love. Let's see. I have always had a sweet tooth. I asked Clancy my favorite question to ask a pastry chef. If there was a specific moment, cake, cookie, or pastry that had hooked them on the craft and ultimately catalyzed them to going to pastry school. When I was a kid, a very little kid, my favorite dessert was Mississippi mud pie. I think that's the first dessert I remember falling in love with as probably like a four-year-old. So the consistent thing has been me loving sweets. Clancy told me about her light bulb moment after a chef recommended going to pastry school if she wanted to be a pastry chef. So connecting the dots as a lover of sweets being open to the experience and wanting to go to culinary school, Clancy found herself as a student of Le Cordon Bleu's Diplôme du Pétisserie, eventually working for the renowned institution after her graduation. It was a nine-month program. It was basically like a fairy tale. I ended up living in Paris for four years. And yeah, I completely enjoyed being a pastry student in Paris. And then working in a bakery and a restaurant. And I had a side hustle of making sweet potato pies. And yeah, it was a very dreamy place to be, period. But it was especially dreamy to be there studying pastry. After several minutes discussing sweet potato pie recipes and our shared love of cookies, I was curious if Clancy's time at Le Cordon Bleu and pastry has impacted her identity. My job at Le Cordon Bleu was in recipe development, and that kind of opened my eyes into what other things you can do with food or how I could use my food knowledge and grow my understanding of food um, in a different way that that's not based in the kitchen. So yeah, that's kind of why I chose to 
to leave kitchen settings or professional kitchen settings and turn my attention towards writing. I went to school in New York City. I went to Columbia. I don't think of my alma mater every day, but that is an ingredient in who I am. You know what I mean? And so I would say the same about my pastry training. It's it's one ingredient of who I am and it impacts. It's kind of how I got my start in a way, you know, and it's how I chose to begin in the world of food. To many, myself included, Black History Month extends far beyond the 28 days of February. Using food as a lens to look back on our collective history, it's not hard to find instances where colonialism and food meet. One profound example of this exists at the intersection of the creation of classical French patisserie and the violent colonial power France exerted through the Caribbean sugar industry. The availability of sugar in excess directly corresponds to the ability of the French to develop intricate, beautiful, and opulent desserts. As a half-African-American woman with a love for making and consuming traditional French pastry, this is a tension I've been seeking ways to digest and understand better. I was curious if Clancy had also found herself dealing with this tension. Mm. So I had a real fascination with France and with the French language and with French culture and French cinema and you name it. And so that was part of my interest just as much as my sweet tooth. That was part of my interest in going to culinary school, specifically in France. I was basically um, infatuated with France. And to a certain extent, I still am. But the more you learn about imperialism and the history of colonization and the effects of colonization, and, you know, the more, I don't know, radicalized or militant you become, it does make you question things. (laughs) So I definitely... It's been weird, honestly, to go from being completely infatuated with a place and a culture to being more critical, you know? That being said, there are people in France of all backgrounds who are critical of France. You know what I mean? It's kind of like being an American in the U.S., you can be critical of it, you know, I, but I can be critical and also consume, you know what I mean? So, and that might be, that might make me a hypocrite, but I kind of feel the same way about France that I can be critical of it and of its colonial past and its exploitation of people specifically Black people, but actually it goes beyond Black people, um, in various parts of the world, but still appreciate certain things. You know what I mean? Like specifically French pastry. So I guess I'm saying I'm okay with being a hypocrite. (laughs) I'm okay with being critical and aware of France's colonial past and present I don't know. I think it's more complex than being critical means you have to not 
consume anything related to this country. You know what I mean? It's something that has ultimately expanded my world. And moreover, at least half of my friends in France are from throughout the diaspora. It's a nuanced situation because I have Black friends who I used to throw like pastry parties with. You know what I mean? So it's like there are people within the diaspora who are enjoying French pastry who have a closer relationship to French colonialism than I do. So if they're cool with it, I'm good too. (laughs) (laughs) Clancy's response illuminates the type of nuance that's important for tempering challenging conversations around our shared colonial history. The structures that are in place today as a result of colonization are not going anywhere anytime soon. As we do the work of being critical, we are also allowed to celebrate and be joyful with one another. Enjoying a good pan au chocolat doesn't have to come at the expense of ignoring its origins. Moving to more modern times, I asked Clancy to fill us in on For the Culture, an evolution of the magazine. Clancy is continuing on the theme of celebrating Black women and femmes' contribution to the culinary legacy of America. I wrote this book for my younger self, the one who was just entering culinary school in Paris or just graduating, because I wish I had known about more Black women and femmes in the culinary field. And I wish I had known about all the options that are available to us or available to anyone really interested in food in wine, in hospitality. And so it's, I interviewed 66 Black women and femmes who occupied different areas of the food world, Um, farmers, chefs, sommeliers, pastry chefs, bakers, food writers, the list goes on. And I wrote essays on Edna Lewis, Lena Richards, uh, Vertime Smart Grosvenor, uh, B. Smith. And I wanted to uh, basically introduce people or reintroduce people to Black women who are doing amazing things or did do amazing things um, and kind of show their impact on the culinary culture. And so, and interviewees have contributed recipes um, as well. So it's like cookbook meets interview book meets personal essays on matriarchs who are no longer here. But I would like for people to learn about somebody who you didn't know about. You know what I mean? Like, I think I find that to be one of the most exciting things about Black History Month, that it's a focused time. And Black History Month, of course, should and actually is 365 days a year because Black history is 365 days a year. But I think that's, for me, what I get a kick out of in February is trying to learn something new. Pre-order your copy of For the Culture by Clancy Miller by checking out our show notes to celebrate and learn something new about another amazing Black woman or femme in food. Learn more about this week's guests and topics by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Katie Ruther, Rana Rudy, and Taylor Early. 
Meet and Three is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Matt Patterson, and me, Katie Mosman Wadler. Our audio engineer for this episode is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.